0: To close in on 50 episodes of the Open Up Cricket podcast, it's great to have John Northcroft back on this edition of the show. John's not only a founding member of Opening Up Cricket, but the football correspondent for the Sunday Times. So this edition takes a slightly different turn as we look at another sport and its experience of COVID. But there's plenty here that, of course, can be applied across into cricket and indeed any walk of life. So some of the themes that we discussed there are football transcending sport and being part of the nation's culture and how that's had an impact on both players and fans at this time. We talk about the importance of connections and how sport can develop these. And also within football particularly, the responses um, from clubs towards players' well-being, the challenges that they've faced through the the shock to their existing routine, as well as their own connections within that. And John reflects on how the, the focus on health, whilst present at the moment, does need to continue for football to be able to look after its players better. Yeah, okay. So um, what we would thought we would talk about uh, today is trying to broaden the um, understanding, I suppose, of the impact of COVID on sport. So in, this, uh, in the series that we did previously, the tea break, where we spoke to professional cricketers, got quite a good insight to them having uh, had to pause their training uh, at the point where they're about to go into the pro season. But um, joining me is John Northcroft uh, today. Now, John's got two hats on, both uh, metaphorically. Uh, One is from his perspective as a founding member of Open Up Cricket. So we'll have that aspect, but also probably more pertinently to to today's discussion, his his day job, that of being a football correspondent with the Sunday Times. So first of all, John, uh, welcome.
1: Thank you. Nice to chat again,
0: Boina. Yeah, well, it's nice to to see for myself this um, quite famous, I would say, on social media background that you have. Uh, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> real appearances, yeah. People think... people were describing you and I and a word the word I saw come up more than once was cool. They said you you it's cool.
1: Yeah, you, you kind of say that in a playful way as if you, it's, a, it's an amusing concept that I might be cool, but come on, Boyne, you, you, you know me well enough to know that um, the cap, the metaphorical cap fits,
0: surely. Yeah, yeah, and it would be on patch backwards.
1: I actually I actually have to qualify that. I think relatively cool is the, the real concept among, uh, among sporting hacks, maybe relatively yeah. cool. Among the yeah, wider think- population, not cool at all.
0: Well, in the current company that you're keeping in this call, you your call, cool, so um, so you can you can. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we'd had a little chat just before then um, about just how of course, everyone's saying these things, how odd and bizarre and unprecedented these times are, even allowing for, for example, the the break that. F- Professional sport had during World War II. This this course is something that the, the very few of them um who experienced that would still be around to experience it now. So w- what was the the intro to it like from your perspective and, and in and in football when they moved from that um that, that time when Liverpool had their their European tie when people now are looking back and saying, was that a good idea to to play it to the point where football shut down and then not only the players, but the fans are left without anything to do in that area. I think what
1: I've observed for long, many years reporting on it, actually, and I've written about this, is that football's become, in my lifetime, and certainly my working lifetime, um, the biggest cultural um, Phenomenon, artifact, whatever you want to call it, that we've got. Football's always been the, the national game, but I just think it's become this huge, overwhelming thing in our society that um, almost becomes the kind of bellwether or litmus test for how we as a country behave. Um, it's sort of over importance. Um, and with all of that, with the money and with that kind of elevated position it's got it doesn't always behave in the most realistic way you know in fact i think football struggles to live in the real world sometimes which is what i'm i'm really getting to and what i saw in that week when um i suppose the covid outbreak was really accelerating and starting to affect a lot of people was initially football just trying to plow on as if nothing was happening in a very typical football way, you know we're special. We don't we don't need to bother about this thing that's happening to everyone else because we're football. Hey, we're just going to carry on. And that wasn't just coming from British sport. That was coming from UEFA in allowing that Champions League game to take place at Anfield or the Europa League games. Um, you know, it was coming from other countries as well. But it also it's was coming from the Premier League. And you, I, I, you know, it's it's hardly been wise too wise after the event. But as that week gather momentum, you just you could see that this was unsustainable football can't continue football we've got to you know we have got to sort of put other things first ie people's lives and, and, and the public health picture and football might have a lot of money but if we're in a situation where um people can't get tested we've got problems with the nhs people being furloughed all that sort of stuff then football can't just kind of carry on as if nothing was happening but in that week, if you think about it, there was a Liverpool game, there was the Europa League games, and at one point it just looked like there was nothing was gonna apply the brakes, nothing was actually gonna stop football and, and and make it actually recognize something bigger than football was happening to the world. And I was sort of joking with a, a mate of mine who's a scout about, you know, I so said basically it's gonna take it's gonna take, you know, Marcus Rashford to get ill or something for for uh for, for everybody to suddenly come to their senses. And it wasn't far off it. I mean, football's so plastic sometimes that it ignored the public health situation. But then Mikel Arteta caught the virus and suddenly, whoa, whoa, whoa we're going to stop. You know, why did it take Mikel Arteta to catch it? Three Leicester players that had already tested positive that morning. You know, but that wasn't enough. It had to be somebody really big and famous. So anyway, it was Mikel Arteta. And it just seemed the way it came about it was a very, very typically football way to behave that... um you know unrealistic and then it took something kind of almost kind of soap opera to happen um for it to come to its senses um and i think the immediate um the immediate sort of thing i observed was just the industry kind of grinding to a halt and just being completely um at a loss to know what to do next because as I sort of said earlier, football's got you used to thinking it's special. It's got you used to having this place in the centre of people's lives, and that realisation that actually you're just an entertainment. You're a wonderful entertainment, but that's all you are. This stuff, this means more, you know, bigger than life and death. No, it's not. And I think football struggled, and probably still struggling, to come to terms with that a little bit. But one thing's for sure, you know, when it stopped, there were there were fans and there were. People within the game saying, "Oh yeah, you know, we, 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 we can't we can't live without it." I mean, I think the one thing we've realised is yes, we can. And it's my hope that out of all of this, um, foot was coming back now, but that sense of perspective that COVID maybe enforced upon it is retained in some way. But I have my doubts.
0: Yeah, you do wonder whether the same old things will will return, whether it be in football or society in, in general. I think what you've said yeah. there about football transcending sport and being an aspect of our culture which, which is up there with, with anything in the national consciousness, we've got two aspects then, really, haven't we? One is the, the, the game's not being played because of the, the players, and and indeed the support staff and everything that comes with putting together a game of football particularly in um in the in the premier league but also where i've noticed and i'm sure others have the real difference between football and other sports has been about the the impact then on the fans um yeah. and when we go back to playing in this this period the empty grounds are going to be something that's, that's Highly unusual, and we had a taste with the Bundesliga that really did look quite surreal. So, where do you feel the balance is here between the actual sport and those who are playing it, albeit professionally, and then the clubs as one of the better term businesses and part of an entertainment industry that need to get their their revenues, but I suppose the third thing of providing some feel good and some distraction for a nation that's that's pretty bored of sitting at home. Well, there was that kind
1: of line being put forward by, I think, coming out of the government or, or their, their, their sort of friendly sources in the media um, earlier in the crisis about how f- football needed to come back to you know, put a smile on the nation's face and all that sort of stuff. Thankfully, that rhetoric's been dropped. You don't really hear that anymore. A couple of government ministers tried that one and, and were shot down. And um, thankfully, and that's what I mean about perspective, I think I think that sense of perspective has been gained a little bit. That, come on, you know, coming back to put a smile on people's faces, if that means causing a risk, um, isn't, a, isn't an acceptable um, way to look at it. Uh, but and what and what 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 it's been replaced with, and this is entirely right, is that football is now just looking at it in business terms, and I know some people might not want to hear that, not want to hear that this is actually happening for the money. Let's be honest, football's coming back for the money. That's the only reason it's coming back. It's coming back to fulfil its TV contract. Um, but actually, so that's what everyone else is trying to do. You know that businesses are trying to reopen for the money. You know. To survive. Now, if football's merely doing what everyone else is doing and being honest about it, we're doing this because we need to not go bust. That sits much better with me than trying to pretend that it's on some kind of entertainment crusade or that it's going to improve the lives of of, of, of people who are um, who've really been affected by this. So I think that's a better sense of perspective. But undoubtedly, when it does come back, you know, this is what I mean about trying to see it for what it is. Of course, it's 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 going to be entertaining. Of course, it will improve people's lives in the sense that it's going to be something to do. As you said, we're bored sitting at home. It's fun. That's what we should be in it for. It doesn't fundamentally improve anyone's life, but it it kind of improves life in the way that a bar of chocolate does or hearing a nice bit of music does, if you know what I mean. It doesn't make you a different person, but it's great to have football. um Back to watch. However, having it only on TV, but not something that spectators are gonna take part in, it's only half coming back. You know, that's that's the other thing I want to say. It's the real thing will not be back until it's actually this event that, that that people can also be part of at the live experience. And and I think watching the Bundesliga, what it shows already is that you know for the kind of football nerd like me who enjoys watching the technicalities of the game the tactics hearing the managers the players it's fascinating but it doesn't have any sense of being anything bigger than a a training exercise for me it's a really diverting thing to look at but it's not the same as watching an event it's not the same as watching something that's pulling people together so you know it ain't coming back until spectators are in the in the stadium and it it, it, it's not. I think. I think. I think, the, I think. The longer it goes without spectators, the more we'll appreciate. Uh, and I keep coming back to perspective. Exactly how important um, normal people, i.e., fans, are to the the sort of you know gilded rich businesses that the football clubs are.
0: Yeah, the the, the, the match day experience um, for the average whoever the average person is, but for the for the match goer is is the is the key really isn't it because we you know, like you've said it, it really struck a, a struck a chord with me that watching say a game of football on television or watching a really good film or just having a, gr- a great bit of food has some aspect of of making you f- you feel good but it's it's very um very transient where yeah. that aspect whoever you support of going to watch a game, perhaps with your friends, your family, or meeting up with people, that whole experience in a way day where you get up at the crack of dawn and you get back um, with the milk float sort of thing. It's, oh. that, the game is a really small part of it. And I'm reading a lot of stuff from the Anfield rap. Um, I'm not a Liverpool fan, but um, I've always admired what, what they do in terms of really making that blend between yeah. they happen to support football team that is one of the most successful uh, of all time, but also it's about it being something more and that and without having that, this feels very plastic and not
1: and yeah right there it does, and I think the the things that people get out of football why that connectedness with their friends or the bonds with their own families with their dads or their mums or their brothers and stuff like that i think. Maybe what a pause from being able to go to games does is it it, it makes us look at ourselves and realise that we need to find that in our lives generally. And if football isn't there, we need to find other ways in which to do that. And, um, you know, I've probably, had, I've probably had more conversations with friends and um, family about stuff other than football than at any point in my life. And actually, it's a really positive thing. It's, 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 it's forcing you to find... All those other things, as you say, the the, the Rap guys write really well about it because that's they always convey the sense that that's what they're in it for, and um, I think that I think that's what um, I think that's what we all need to do. You know, we we, I mean, the, the the bit about football that I'm missing the most is actually playing it. The bit about football I'm missing the most is meeting a bunch of guys I play with in Leicester, mates running around enjoying the exercise aspect of it and the and the crack the fun of it so you need to try and find those you know you try and recreate that in, in other parts of your life and I think I'm sure for a lot of people the bit of football that they're missing most is actually being with their mates or being um connected to their brother dad mom sister whatever it is or, or kids that they they go to the game with and I hope that you know we're, we're all and i think people are from what you you see in here people are finding different ways to make those those connections
0: yeah but, and those i always thought that that sport's a vehicle for getting people together but, yeah. but in some ways the sport is incidental in what it achieves in terms of mm. bonds and it's a, a little bit um in this conversation, although I've contacted you to talk about the current state of football, <laughs> my next question is probably a little bit odd, considering that. But you must have found, for someone whose job is a part, is a is a strong part of defining who you are. Yeah. Um. You know, you've been introduced on this podcast with a title rather than just oh, here's John. It's John who does this. Yeah. inevitable otherwise it's just some random guy from from Scotland um, <laughs> no, a lovely voice, but uh, but who is he so yeah. um have you found in this period of time that just in in general you've been able to brought you, you've had your horizons broadened not necessarily what you uh, um talk about, but your interaction with others isn't maybe so much just about football I and mean, it's, it's broadened out that way.
1: I have done. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's, I'm still working. I'm still still writing a lot, but actually the stuff is, is, is different anyway. You know, um, I think I found myself writing about things that stretch me and maybe make me feel I'm more like a journalist and not just a football journalist, if that makes sense. And um, you realise that... that um, it's just yeah you know the conversations that are important when i speak to my parents for example are very basic but it's you know it really is the how are you stuff and you know with mates or with 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 neighbors and stuff it's 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 just more basic it's trying to find um the fun in life and the, the 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 common grounds that we've we've got and and um you know i think you know me well enough to know that um it can be tiring sometimes to just everybody want, wanting to define you as uh you know the football journalist or all that you know because because that's all everyone wants to talk to you about and it's been nice talking about other stuff something that comes to mind that I, I i had a conversation with lee richardson who's a liverpool fc psychologist and he does work for the pfa and he does actually does work for lancashire county cricket and um he used a kind of powerful phrase that's been going around my head. Um, really in the context of 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 he said this is what a lot of people face when they professional sportsmen when they give up sport when they retire. We call the identity foreclosure. You know, when you stop being that star or you stop being that thing and you just become a normal human being again. And like like a lot of people have been watching the Michael Jordan documentary and um one of the things I found compelling about it is that even though it was made as a vehicle for him by his own people and shows how amazing he was, the most compelling bits I found was him sitting in his armchair as an older guy. And he, he couldn't, he couldn't keep the sadness out of his eyes at the fact that he's no longer Michael Jordan, the athlete, that he's just he's still Michael Jordan, the mega star, but he's not doing the thing anymore. And that identity foreclosure, and you just got me thinking about this. To how people are defined. I think that must be very difficult for a lot of people in life at the moment, you know, who've been furloughed and they were defined by the job they did. And I think it must be particularly, I've been thinking about sportsmen and footballers. I think during the lockdown period, I'm sure that it was very difficult for them to go from being um, defined on the pitch to suddenly being with their families or and spending time and not being the most important thing. Um, that as I say, that identity foreclosure thing. Um I don't think anyone's really spoken about that. I don't think any of the players have really spoken about that. Here, but I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years time people like, you know, in, in my business are able to start doing interviews where people open up about that kind of stuff. Because I'm sure this has challenged people everywhere, but you know, sportsmen in particular more than at any other period um in their lives.
0: Yeah, it's and this is always the issue that for some people, they will, will refuse to have any sympathy with professional sports people because of the fact that they earn more money and they're in the public eye and they're living a dream. Um, so from, for that section of, of people, it will be, oh, you know, woe is me. These people have had more time. They're still being paid. You know, what are they moaning about? Mm-hmm. But they will have their issues with identity, like you've mentioned, which are, are, are nigh on impossible for um, other people to understand. And I know with conversations that I've had with, with, with crick- cricketers and people who support cricketers, whether within the counties or, or through PCA and other organisations, identity is the thing. And being known as particularly an, a former something is, is right. so difficult. And at the moment, there's that, that state of, 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 of uncertainty where players, so let's say football, for example, they, have, they do have a lot of time, don't they, in terms of their training. And then it's sort of, well, okay, might play golf or might do this. And you know some of the pitfalls that they can fall into. But having all that extra time when maybe you've sculpted your existence around just being a, a, a football, and might not have that range of, of hobbies. And I know some of the, the interviews that you that you do, when I read them, the, the, the thing which strikes me the most is where you, you've spoken to a player or a manager or someone in the game who does seem to have a breadth of interests. Yeah. The is of a professional footballer being um, uneducated, you know, very tunnel vision, and that might be a part of why they've been successful. But... This time at the moment, if someone does live up to that caricature, it must be very difficult if you don't really have anything to divert your attention.
1: Absolutely, um, because you know, in a, in professional footballers' lives are mapped out like people in the army. You know, in, in a way, the game discourages them from having that breadth, um, even more so now than it ever did because of the influence of sports science and and marginal gains, wanting to control every tiny aspect of a player's life, right down to, you know, sleep and naps and stuff in the afternoon. But you think about the way that a player exists. um, It tends to be a kind of 11 month a year, 11 and a half months, almost 11 months a year job with a two week period where they go off to Dubai and don't have a real, you know, it's not real life either i go off to Mauritius or to buy and have a holiday. But in between those times, it's, um, you know, getting up every day. You know, days of the week don't matter because it's a 7 day a week job. Um, reporting to training at a particular time. You know, doing doing training, eating a prescribed meal that the nutritionist has has presented. Going home and doing, um, you know, a, probably a prescribed program of you got to rest, you got to do this, you've got to eat, and then you've got to go to sleep. And living that for years. And, and, and a lot of the, the 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 players who've retired say to me one of the things they struggle with most is just that that complete loss of a framework, that complete loss of routine. And as I say, because of that control of their lives, the, the game's not encouraging them to have much outside of the strict, as I said, like like being in the army, that strict regimen. And uh I was speaking to a footballer recently actually who's who's got a real passion for music and has always played the piano and blah 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 and, and and said to me you know god if you know when i retired if i didn't have that i still don't know how i would have got through this but i had something else that always made me a little bit broader in interests um and i think it must be you know if all you do is play and you get this little burst of hedonism and then play again and at a t- time like this when you can't play and you can't go out and anyway spend time in the family which not you know you've never really done in your life to any great extent before because of the way you live it must have been enormously difficult for um for a lot of guys um maybe hardest for the younger players though more than anyone who don't have families and have suddenly been found themselves alone because again footballers have you know so many people who want to be part of their worlds but um you know I, I i spoke to a young player early in lockdown who for the first time in his life was just at home with his dog never been in that situation before with nobody wanting a, a piece of them and um if there's a positive it might be that kind of reality check um but i think that this is this is a time more than any that, that clubs are going to need to take care of the, the players and not just you know i think Maybe clubs have done quite well during lockdown in terms of giving them support, psychological support like Liverpool and training regimes. But I'd have thought once they come back, um, this is a time more than ever that, that the good clubs will need to take care of them psychologically and, and holistically more than ever.
0: Yeah, because it, in term, any area of society, we're, we're, we're probably... I fall into this, this trap of imagining before COVID mm. and it's gonna go back to normal without any mm. staggering of it. But of course that's complete nonsense. So these guys, yes, will be returning to training in dribs and drabs doing small group stuff and then scaling it up. So yeah, the temptation is to slip into that trap that I have where you think, oh well, when we're back, it'll mm. be done. <clears throat> I've definitely seen some saw some stuff about what Lee Richardson has been doing at um Liverpool regarding that, is yeah. there anything else sort of coming out that's being discussed about ways in which the the clubs have managed to keep connected with their players? Is there anything that they they do that they? of course it's a, di- a different time to usual, but what are the, the mechanisms they have in place at least to be yeah.
1: able to work with them well m- most most of them have, have done what we 're doing now, most of them have used. Um, online tools to to keep players connected whether that's just simple things like um you know carl walker peters was saying to me that uh, southampton they had these kind of weekly yoga sessions and he didn't actually particularly like doing it but it was good to be part of just a chance to connect with the, the lads doing a kind of big group zoom thing or whatever um i know some clubs have taken the opportunity to do one-on-ones with players um, like Arteta's done at Arsenal, using this kind of stuff. And another thing that's come out of that is that, you know, for the younger generation of players, they actually find it easier to um, to do this than sometimes to do the face-to-face stuff. You know, older footballers tell me that they, they notice a big difference with the younger generation that you can't talk to them directly in the way that senior pros used to be in their faces when they were, coming through or managers used to be you've kind of got to put things in a much more indirect and nicer way. And sometimes they even want you to, you know, kind of e- email them rather than, you know, literally or text them rather than tell them straight. Uh, and they want the analysis rather than just you tell them you need to track back more. Um, so, but I think, I think maybe what might be coming out of this is that, 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 that um, clubs might start be able to start using these tools a bit more. Um, and it might open up a different way of connecting with some of the younger players that that I know as I say managers and senior players were finding a challenge because of how society's changed Um, so that's an interesting thing but I do I do think that a lot of clubs might just be guilty of that thing you touched on of saying to themselves right once we're back everything's fine and and so I mean if you think about what the players are going to now go through they're going to go through near continuous football for about 13 months to fit it all in, get next season started, get get all the international football played, get through to the Euros, you know, be July 2021 by, by the time everyone's ready to take a breather. They're gonna have more more match time than ever. And that's really going to put them on a treadmill of just play, recover, play, recover, rest, prepare, play again. And um, they're gonna spend more time than they've ever, together than they've ever done. Um, and they're probably, having had, they've had this period with their families, but now they're probably going to see less of them than they've ever done for a, for a while as well. So that's an enormous sort of, you know, psychological shift into COVID and then the shift back out. And I'd make the point again that they really need to, to sort of support players properly. And I think the other big job is going to be, you know, we've kind of been talking slightly about the, the top end in the Premier League, but below that, there's going to be an enormous amount of players now out to work. And there's gonna be an enormous amount of young players, and these I probably feel more sorry for them than anyone. Maybe you're talking about the 18, 19-year-old guys who are coming through the books um, at League One, championship, even Premier League level. And there's just not there won't be enough employment for them. There's gonna be a there's gonna be a generation, I think they're gonna end up having to drop out of the game because the opportunities won't be there. Every club will make the squad. Slightly smaller will be less prone to signing people. People being released from academies at the Premier League might just find it that bit harder to get that championship club and it'll go down the scale. So I think the game as a whole is going to have a big unemployment crisis to deal with as well and, and needs to try and take care of some of the young players that are going to, and, and all the players that are going to be coming out of contract too. And there's a lot of questions I've got about how well that's going to go, I have to say, because I'm not sure that the PFA are good enough at it. Um, uh, and I'm not sure that the, uh, the actual authorities have either got the money or the time or the, the expertise to, to look at this either.
0: Yeah. Is, is that the aspect of whether it be sports psychology or welfare, or even in the case of say, uh, Oxford United, where they've got this story, Gary Bloom there as a, a sports psychotherapist. Um, that being quite big news and being covered a lot does give an indication that perhaps that approach is the exception rather than the the norm or it might be different personalities and they don't publicise it in the same way. But how, and this is a a ridiculous question because it's so broad, but how do, what's the, the general approach? Is it that sports psychology is still seen as something where it's a story that it's being used? Or is it classed now as a legitimate aspect? And I think with just to say, I think with someone like Clot, because he has a, a rich success, mm. it, it legitimizes it. But I always think there's an undercurrent of if it wasn't someone like Clot, it might be seen a little bit more as an indulgence that isn't necessary.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's still quite a long way to go. Um... I mean, you know, as I say, Lee's doing great work for Liverpool, but he only joined them at the start of last season and of this season, 2019-20. And I'm not sure how many other people are working at that level in the game, which tells you something. Um, and I think, I think what you find as well, you look at labels, you pay attention to labels, I think the game's now ready to accept people who are put down there as performance specialists, but they're really psychologists, you know, but performance is maybe a better word, more acceptable word. I think that still exists and sports psychologists or sports psychiatrists are still a kind of novelty value or negative connotation at, at some points. I, I mean, I think, I think there's been mistakes made. I mean, you know, maybe some of the sports psychs have over promoted themselves shall we say um i could think of one in particular that worked with england that might have done that um and when i spoke to lee one thing he was kind of keen to do was to actually be you know he still wants to sort of be in the background a little bit but, but then he's a former player and a former manager so i think he's got this understanding of how um this, within the game there's still a sensitivity of, of people being seen as, you know, um yeah. I think it's got to be seen as part of the game and part of clubs and, and, and not something that's like uh, I am struggling for the right vocabulary here because I don't want to rely on old cliches, but the idea of the the, the the quack or the the guy that's addressing well we you know you know the the guy that's sort of addressing Big issues when really you know it's a lot like, like what opening up does. It? It, it, it's, it's a, a performance tool, a, a, a cultural tool for any club to have, a very powerful one would be having a sports psych on board. Um, and I think the, I think that is starting to be understood, but as a long there's probably still um, a, 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 another element that would see it as, as you'd only bring in a sports psychologist if there's something wrong. I guess that's what I mean. I think the I think it's significant that Liverpool brought one in after winning the European Cup. So I thought that was incredible that they brought that there's nothing there's patently nothing wrong at a club that wins a European Cup. They brought Lee in in order to continue their development as a you know, to, to keep getting better, to improve performance and improve culture. Um and I think that's the way it needs to be looked at rather than being seen as, oh, well, you know, like, like I've seen it reported in England, oh, we're going to, you know, some head doctor's going to come in and help them take penalties. I mean, that's often how it's kind of portrayed and it still is to a certain extent.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the proactive element is definitely one that we get behind in saying it's not to to just react to there being problems. And I, a lot of when I've done research on the work that leaders it, he had that time working with um, with Sam Allardyce and there's very much a narrative of, well, things are going wrong. So he's got yeah. to fix this just in the same way as he'd bring in a bruising centre forward and, and, and so it's yeah. a, a tactic. But on the, I think again, there's this really interesting depending on the setting about what the what the use of a of a, sport, of a psychologist or someone in the mental side of the game is and of course performance is going to be the lead for it given the results business that they're operating in but in terms of that that welfare that we've touched on throughout what we've been talking about to so be a good a place as any to to finish we've got the aspects of welfare and well-being for the fans wanting to get back to, to having that that's camaraderie and the, uh, the link with people for the for the players this this time like we've discussed is is clearly one of challenge just like it is for anyone else and it's no greater or no worse it's just a it's a, it's a different challenge to what the, um, the the bloke on the street you know, whoever this, this figure is and um, we've had examples of of players speaking about mental ill health often after retirement same exists in the other sports seems to be easier to reflect Mm. on a bad time and talk about it openly than to say something at the time itself for for a number of reasons i'm sure um where where is where's the game at in terms of that providing that not not performance support but just for someone as a human being who may be a millionaire uh, or may also be someone on a a small amount week and and, i'm trying to pay off their mortgage Again, it's, it's a very broad question, but what's your sense of where we're at in terms of that info?
1: Well, I still see clubs being, in general, defined by whoever's managing them at the time. Um, it's still the manager that seems to set the culture and, and those sort of parameters for clubs. So I think the clubs who are good at welfare are, in general, the clubs who have got managers who are... Um, Let's say holistic or enlightened in their approach, and there's a lot. There's there's a number of man, that's a big part of management now. You know you can you can you can you can see how man, you know, being more than just a a coach, but being somebody who looks after the whole person. That's become a big part. Young managers Arteta, um, Lampard uh, are really trying to make this a, a big. You know, Eddie Howe's done a big part of what they do. Um, and at the mo I think I think that's that's really positive. And of course, you know, Liverpool, you know, have got a really good leader in Klopp who's very good at um uh delegating and very good at looking after the the, the person and all that kind of stuff. And and the old guys did it as well, the Fergies and so on. But I think where the game needs to get to is beyond that, where it's not just it's you know, it's not it's not just the manager that's that's responsible for the club that's the club that's using that's supporting players properly, that's got proper welfare uh, at its heart, that's that's maybe got a psychologist on board, that's maybe um, you know puts that player put, puts the, the human being first. Isn't just not just because there's a manager there that believes in that stuff, but it's because the club believes in it. And I think this this there's, there's too many. There's still a long way to go for clubs where um, not the the, the the culture changes. Depending on who's in charge, and you know, I'm a big believer in directors of football. I'm a big believer in uh, you know clubs needing to kind of grow up a little bit, football clubs, and not be so short term. So I think all that comes um, if, if if football can make that kind of leap and development. And I think the test for Liverpool, let's let's say we just use we're talking that as an example. I think the test for them would come: what happens if Klopp departs and um, let's say more. I mean, th- this actually won't happen because Liverpool will try and get someone like Klopp, they'll try and continue the culture. But imagining it did happen and a, d- a manager with a different mindset came in, you would hope that all the stuff, if, there's, if they're a proper organization, all the stuff they've already got in place would just continue no matter who was coach. Um, so that's I think football's only halfway along the journey because until it makes that jump that a culture of a club is is defined by more than just its coach. Then it's not really going to be doing. Uh, it's not being be a good enough place to guarantee looking after players or the people that work for it.
0: Yeah, and perhaps we're going to see, like you mentioned earlier, and um, what what the outcomes of this period are in how players have been able to transition, yeah. and just and how they they hold up. And I think as we we do get towards this 17th of, of June. And then the mirroring this with the with the cricketers as well. Domestic players being told it's the first of August, there'll be a test se- there'll be a, a test series um between England and the West Indies behind closed doors and and, and very similar I think we can apply these things across there um, even though that the environments are different and the, the monetary values are it's still the same kind of principles around identity and, and how people come out of it. So, um, final question then, Northie, what would you want to, uh, in an ideal world, or what do you think is, 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 has the potential to happen in terms of that understanding and, and helping the players and those involved in, in football as people from this? We're going to take something from having this difficult period um, for the players as well as the fans. What could we realistically hope for that we get out of it to make it something where we see a benefit to to people's welfare?
1: Well, the biggest, the biggest thing is a pragmatic thing, and it touches on what I spoke about earlier, which is that more players are going to be unemployed than ever before. And the support for those guys... Um, has to has to be there, and, and women, because the women's game's going to be absolutely affected even worse, I think, probably. But the support for them that has got to be there now. It's going to be in place now. It's going to be there for even more so at academy level. Um, what I mean is proper pathways to transition out into other jobs. If it's not going to work out, that's going to be put in place. Um, and there's got to be... Help for all these players back into civilian life who just aren't going to have clubs to go to. Um, but I think some of the positive things that have come out of the last few weeks, and I'm thinking now about how it played out with the Watford players and Troy, I think Troy Dini went from being sort of immediately vilified by some of the idiots um, on social media and the actual media let's say to um to a level of understanding happened quite quickly i think that narrative flipped partly because he's fearless and he just went out and talked and told the story and it was accepted properly um so that sense of that, that you touched on it earlier that no matter how much you earn players are allowed players are human beings and are allowed to be human beings should be allowed to be human beings um I hope that i hope the game helps i'm kind of being a bit vague because i don't quite know how it's going to be achieved but I, I hope that that openness players talking and us listening um is maintained and that clubs on a practical level encourage that to happen and you know that's where the media comes in don't sort of shut it down and try and make everything a limited message um so i think that's i think that's an important thing and you know just within football clubs for the next, however long health is, whether they like it or not, health is actually going to be an absolutely fundamental part of what everyone does. Players are going to be tested um, all the time. Uh, Every club's got a COVID officer, all that kind of stuff. So that is a mechanism that suddenly put health at the centre of how clubs operate. And I hope that that culturally leaves a a mark, um, that there isn't a day in the future where, right we're gonna abandon right, abandon the covid department we don't need to uh, test players anymore think about their mental health think about their physical health we we'll just go back to where we are as i say i hope it creates a bit of a cultural change which has happened at a lot of clubs but hasn't happened at enough of them um i don't know if that in any way answers your question but um those are some of the things that i yeah, i can think of
0: anyway that 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 did the job just nicely yeah and i as we finish, what well, uh, I think it was last week or a week before that, it was Mental Health Awareness Week, and the theme was "Be Kind." And we've heard that as an expression, and and it's been used a lot on social media owing to to, to tragic events um, outside of sport, but just sometimes seem to be this this urge that people have, and of course, I'm a person, so I, I have this this um, at times to always qualify well meaning statements by thinking I'll well, be kind but oh come on I'll call that person see you next Tuesday because they get paid 100 grand a week and really if we as a as a society you know could just actually move towards saying let's avoid the judgement and just say yeah by all means, criticize them for misplacing a pass but we don't need to vilify them when when they're browsing through it on social media so the fans and the the general public have, have of course got a role to play as well, because these lads do see what people yeah. write about them, don't, it's not like the old fashioned you know, don't read the newspapers or don't pick, he's are telling someone not to pick up their yeah. it's, it's
1: don't, I mean, d- don't, don't get me wrong football needs to pay footballers less and society needs to pay nurses more, I mean that, that's, that's just a broader point about the world the way it works, but the fact that these guys do get paid what they get paid. It's not their fault. So let's treat them as human beings. Let's not define them by that. You know, if if they earn too much, which they probably do, that's a problem for the world we live in. Not not, not their problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And then we don't know um what 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 people do. I mean, we've seen some some yeah. things in the media about people absolutely. their time and their money. But the the purpose of a lot of charity is to do it, not do it without the rest of the world seeing it so people sending money back home if they from another country or supporting things in their community this stuff does go on doesn't it but often without fanfare so um it can usually. do something to address the balance in that sense
1: hugely hugely i mean I, I mean i think as a section of society footballers i'd imagine would come out pretty much near the top when it comes to being engaged with their communities and doing doing charitable stuff i mean that, that's the fact and you know a lot of them come from poor communities and support um family members friends and so on you know above what normal people do and that doesn't make that really doesn't make them sense I, this is where we come back to qualifying for them you don't want to say anything almost positive about footballers because you just get the negative reaction but um this is where hancock was so wide of the mark that actually if you compare them to other rich people Let's just compare them to other rich people, not compare them to normal human beings. Compare them to other rich people. I think they do pretty well, um, whether it's to corporate lawyers, investment bankers, or even even you know top earning entertainment stars or people in the media. I think footballers would would probably come out higher than most. Um, partly because it's enforced on it by by you know looking after the image, of course, but partly because they're they're pretty genuine lads in my experience um who actually don't want to lose touch with where they've come from and are perfectly aware of the world around them. You know, in my experience that really is the case and there's probably a few um things that that, that, that some people have done let that let that down of course. Um but there's a lot of footballers that social conscience would be would be above average, and, as you say, do plenty of things in private that, that don't ever get written about or known about.
0: Yeah, and we probably collectively hold them to a different standard because a lot of us, millions of us, mm. would love to have done that job. So if then we get a hint of them not behaving in a certain way, there's a little thing of there going, oh, wow, they're abusing that position and it's almost, if I was in that case, I wouldn't be, be doing that when you kind of got to think why would you be any different you know, if I was on that much money a week maybe I would buy uh, oh. you know or, or would I live like I'm on the same money as a six form lecturer probably not <laughs> how, No, I
1: mean how how many of us a ever refuse a wage raise and b spend all of our money sensibly that's all I'd ask that's what I'd say and if you if you, if you're one if you're one of the rare people that could answer both those questions in the right way, fine, you can criticise anyone you like. But if you can't, probably best just not.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a, a fair way of putting it, and that's actually reminded me to uh, to maybe look at those bank statements. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, brilliant, John. That's a pleasure. Um, I think what we definitely can can take from this is just how that uncertainty has had impacts across a lot of areas in the sport. Um, And I think your insight to what the clubs are doing and perhaps what they could be doing is is really, really important addition to what the conversation around this has been. So as we depart, uh, I certainly hope that, you know, from your perspective, you can get back to having a game of footy yourself soon. Uh, I hope you've someone that you uh, tell to run after the ball, but as soon as he gets it, he has to give it back to another. (laughs) Um, It's got
1: a place in the team, boy,
0: (laughs) now. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, take care. Um, All the best to yourself and to the family. um, And we'll speak again soon. Real pleasure. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. If you're interested in hearing and reading more of what John has to say, he's on Twitter at Jay Northcroft. And I would certainly recommend to anyone his book, Fearless, which documents Leicester City's rise to winning the Premier League. For now, that's all. Hope you're all well. Look forward to speaking with you again in our next episode coming very soon. <laughs>